Hi, Kate. Hi, Daniel. Welcome to Hot and Bothered Episode 6, a podcast about the politics of climate change for the 99%, and we are hosted by Descent Magazine. This week on Hot and Bothered is a little bit British, somewhat ironically, given that there's a big thing happening here next week. Yeah, that is pretty ironic. Kate, have you just finally gotten your fill of U.S. politics, or is it basically that you have a crush on the accent? Well, mix of both. But, you know, like most of America, I, I need a break from the election. But aside from taking some time off from thinking about emails and the FBI and John Podesta and Russia and Trump and Clinton this week, uh, we're also talking about a favorite and related hot and bothered subject across the pond, state power, and what it means for energy policy. But we will talk a, a bit about the election, right? Um, you did promise listeners a rant about the Green Party. Or at least you sent me some secret emails making a promise. Um, sorry to kind of put you out there. That's right. That's right. And, and then we'll hear from James Angel of the group Switched on London about their campaign for energy democracy there. Uh, and we'll hear about his recent trip to Barcelona, studying the work of Atacolau's government and what they're doing around energy municipalization. In the second half of the show, we've got Kevin Smith of Liberate Tate, who is part of the fossil-free culture movement to get big oil out of the arts. I caught up with him here in New York in their U.S. tour last month. So, you know, Kate, I think as we both know, if you're going to talk about another country, uh, my preference obviously is Canada. Um, but of course, at the same time, the Queen of the United Kingdom is also the Queen of Canada. Uh, and I, I stringently oppose that. But at the same time, I do feel this kind of strange affinity slash slash hatred for the for the Brits. I mean, I guess basically this podcast is obviously rigged. So you're just going to do that. Uh, speaking of which, let's should we just talk for one minute about the uh, about the election? Yeah, let's do it. Well, so Kate, um, sorry to jump in here, but so you used to care a lot about Jill Stein, uh, your pinned tweet is an attack on the fourth place candidate in this election, obviously very urgent. Um, but you know, I was wondering if we could maybe first hear about your kind of mic drop prophecy from uh, last week in The Guardian. Want to fill us in on, on that one? So when there was still a less than 5% chance that Donald Trump could uh, win the presidency, I, I, I wrote something saying basically that, that, that he could still win. Um, so I wrote an article last week, uh, you know, making the case that we shouldn't give up now uh, in our on our popular front uh, against against Trump. Uh, and then later that day, uh, a whole new scandal unearthed about Clinton. Uh, and so it's now looking even more likely than it did when I wrote that article uh, that, that Trump could win. It's still thankfully not all that likely. Um, but the point remains uh, that we should be ever vigilant. And if you happen to live near a swing state, uh, Daniel, you're in Pennsylvania, uh, maybe now's a good time to, to you know, get involved in, in door knocking or, um, you know, take a little time out of your day to ensure, uh, you know, to do your part in stopping the march of fascism. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Kate, that I wouldn't want to violate the uh, Americans uh, election being interfered uh, into by Canadians Act. Um, but, uh, you know, it does seem like you were basically tipped off by the Chinese about the Russians um, sort of feeding Comey this new information. Um, but, that, you know, what about what about Jill Stein? Uh, speaking of broad coalitions, uh, you know, she's uh, her party is called Green. Um, you know, Green is the favorite color of many hot bothered podcast listeners. What's, what's going on there? 
So there is a Green Party in the U.S. Uh, there's a Green Party in many other parts of the world. Uh, in some places, they're more relevant and organized than they are here in uh, the United States. But Jill Stein, like you mentioned, is the fourth place candidate uh, in this election. And uh, the Greens do sort of project this kind of monopoly on uh, environmental issues, as well as, you know, a slew of kind of progressive, progressive causes. And, and what I wrote about several months ago uh, in the in the pin tweet that Daniel mentioned uh, is that they don't actually have a plan to win power. And as we'll talk about today, uh, something that's really crucial for achieving climate justice, as, as we like to talk about on the show, uh, is getting power, is getting state power, um, and actually having a plan to win uh, on, on several different fronts. And, and part of that right now is uh, stopping Donald Trump from becoming the president of the United States and having literally anything to do with our energy policy. Uh, so, you know, I maintain my stance. I think it's you know, maybe we can soften on the Green Party question in the in the coming months. But um, I think, you know, for now, I think we need to need to have a an all out effort, um, you know, to elect the neoliberal warmonger, as Adolf Reed likes to say. Yeah, you know, I definitely don't want to stand, uh, Kate, between you and the great debate over the Green Party. So I'll just leave that. But um, and I don't want to make any jokes about Donald Trump putting solar shingles on his you know, next uh, gigantic casino or hotel resort. But I, I think it is kind of ironic. We are basically not talking at all about climate change in this election. So speaking of Brits, you know, in today's Financial Times, which along with uh, other old white men like Noam Chomsky and David Harvey, I also read, uh, there's a, you know op-ed by the chief financial correspondent for The Times, the Financial Times talking about how crazy it is that the U.S. election doesn't talk about climate change. And it just gives me this weird twinge of nostalgia for, of all people, Martin O'Malley. Like, it seemed to me that in the Democratic primary, you had three candidates. And the one who talked the most about climate change, O'Malley, came last. And then the one who talked the second most, Bernie Sanders, uh, came second. And the one who talked the least about it is now, uh, as you say, the kind of the, the person that, that is going to, is our, like, uh, I don't know, I guess, low carbon firewall against, against Trump, or medium carbon firewall uh, against Trump. So I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, I guess the, the big the big question is, like, what can the climate movement achieve after the election? I mean, is that right? That's kind of why we're trying to learn about some successes across the pond. Right, exactly. And, and you know, as we'll, as we'll talk about later on, uh, the left especially, you know, has a little bit of trouble focusing on other other realms of, of um, electoral politics that, that aren't the presidency. Um which you know comes up every four years, but there is a lot of opportunity down ballot, especially at the municipal and city level, to enact some really incredible progressive programs. So as kind of bleak and and depressing as the election is, especially uh, given the the lack of conversation about climate change, uh, there are you know more there is more grounds for hope in the in the coming years uh, when it comes to to energy policy. Um, and so you know not all hope is lost. Is is kind of the, the, the most uh, optimistic thing I can muster on November 1st. Yeah, not all hope is lost. Not all hope is lost. And speaking of which, let's hear from London to try to get some. I, I never thought it, it pains me, given all that I've been through in my life, to, to say, let's go to, to the United Kingdom for a bright, a, a bright image of what, of what the future could become. But, but I guess that's where we are. So let, let's do bright that. Right in a metaphorical sense. It's, of course, very cloudy, usually in the United Kingdom. That's right. And, and foggy. foggy. And foggy. Yeah. Okay, let's hear the interview with James Angel.
James Angel is a campaigner with the group Switched on London, which recently secured a commitment from London's newly elected Labour Party mayor, Sadiq Khan, to create a publicly owned municipal energy company there, what the group calls an affordable, democratic, and environmentally sustainable alternative to the big six energy companies. We've talked before on Hot and Bothered about energy democracy, which is the relatively simple concept that power should be affordable, democratically controlled, and not cook the planet. James has written extensively on the subject, and his most recent paper is entitled Towards an Energy Politics in, Against, and Beyond the State, Berlin's Struggle for Energy Democracy. On top of his work with Switched on London, James is also a PhD student at King's College London. As you'll hear more about shortly, he also recently took a trip to learn more about the work on energy democracy happening in Barcelona. There, Barcelona and Camus, the city's Podemos-affiliated left government, led by Mayor Eta Colau, is rolling out a plan to municipalize its energy system and transition entirely over to renewables, looking to combine the demands of the movements against austerity and those for climate justice. While the presidential election here in the U.S. has dominated the news cycle for the better part of the last two years, what's happening in Barcelona can be seen as a model for what's possible when the left can test for other levels of government. Here's James Angel. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, To start off, I was wondering if you could talk about Switched on London. How did it come about? How did you come by this pledge from the city? And what's happening now? Sure, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, So Switched on London um, is uh, a campaign uh, for a clean, fair and democratic uh, municipal energy company in London. So the idea is um, a campaign for uh, a new fully public non-profit company uh, in the city uh, that would be um, investing ambitiously in new clean energy generation uh, that would then sell that on to households in the city at um, affordable prices um, to tackle energy poverty. While the uh, company would be owned by the local state, it would be democratically controlled by the people who live in the city and the people who work in the energy sector. That's kind of the basic idea. The idea kind of came out of um, emerging discussions within kind of UK activist networks around this idea uh, of energy democracy. This idea that had been developing kind of came out, I think, of, of German climate justice movements, um, but as a, as a kind of framing for an alternative to privatization and corporate control um, of our energy system that we could be using to think through kind of progressive energy transitions as we start to move to renewables, basically. So this kind of idea had been knocking around for some time, but um, it had sometimes seemed kind of abstract. Um, so we wanted to kind of fill this idea with content. We wanted to do something um, concrete um, to start um, building hope in the idea of another energy system, um, building ideas about what that could look like. And that's kind of where, where Switched on London came from. Um, it's worth saying as well that um, the idea of municipal energy, of, of cities setting up their own public energy companies um, as an alternative to, to the private sector, has been a kind of emerging agenda across Europe for a few years now so so as as you might have heard um really big in germany maybe that's something we can we can talk through later but um in the uk it's just kind of kicking off basically um so a couple of cities nottingham and bristol have just set up um, municipal energy companies that's something that um there's kind of a lot of excitement um among kind of progressive energy activists in the uk but also a sense that um that these companies that have been set up um are uh, great steps, but potentially limited. That that um, 
the they're not doing um, as much as they could to be radically democratic to give people real control so so we kind of wanted to to intervene in that agenda and to try and push it in a certain direction so so that's kind of where switched on London came from um, and we've kind of um, we launched a year ago pretty much exactly a year ago since then we've built a big uh, coalition bringing together big environmental groups, major trade unions, uh, more grassroots kind of community organisations, energy cooperatives. So, so this kind of big cross section of interested groups um, around our demand. Um, and yeah, we've had we've had a major focus around uh, the London mayoral elections, which happened this May. Um, so we ended up getting this pledge, like you mentioned, this pledge from the new mayor. Um, he's a he's a Labour mayor, Sadiq Khan. Um, a pledge from him to set up uh, a new public municipal company. And um, we got that through, yeah, a combination of different tactics ranging from kind of insider lobbying and research through to more kind of confrontational um, protests, movement building, building links with various struggles across the city. And and now we've got this pledge. Our question now is, well, how can we make this energy company that we're going to get as good as possible? How can it meet the kind of clean socially just democratic vision that we're setting out and how can we make sure that it's not a some kind of dodgy public-private partnership or, or something that's not as ambitious as it could be. Right. And just to build on that, I mean, something you've written about is the potential for this kind of neoliberal takeover of the energy democracy frame, slipping into a kind of language of self-sufficiency where, you know, everyone who can afford it puts a solar panel on their roof or something like that. So do you see any kind of danger of that in the UK of slipping into this sort of solar conservatism um, or, you know, having having private companies play kind of an outsized role uh, in, in creating the, the, these sorts of um, energy democracy programs? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I think that is certainly a danger. I mean, one way you could tell the story is is that like the big utilities um, missed a trick, really, and they kind of know it that they they kind of missed the boat or the chance to hop on the kind of renewable bandwagon a few years ago as as kind of European countries started looking at um, energy transitions, uh, and now they're kind of realizing that that might have been a bit of a mistake for their for their profitability. So. Um, they're kind of doing all kinds of strange things like splitting their business operations, setting up new companies that can uh, kind of have clean black branding to take on new uh, renewable assets um, while still maintaining the dirty fossil assets in, in, in different companies. Um, and, and yeah, they're looking to, to kind of emerging to new kind of emerging renewables markets to try and to try and cash in basically. So with the question of municipal energy, um, London, before before the pledge um, that we've we've won um, for the new public company that I've just talked about, London had kind of already been talking about um, a separate scheme, which was about um, supporting decentralised renewable generation in the city. And that, um, although they were keeping quiet about it, um, we managed to to uncover that that was going to be a public private partnership with Npower. Um, who are the UK arm of RWE, the kind of German utility giant, uh, who are kind of notorious for particularly like their lignite coal mining in Germany, um, particularly destructive form of coal mining. So, so, so these companies like RWE are realizing that they need to get in on on kind of emerging decentralized renewable energy schemes if they want to keep afloat, basically. Um, and and that of course brings a real risk of co-optation. So that's something that I think, yeah, movements working on energy need to be, yeah, really vigilant about and have some have some pretty clear principles and ideas of what it is we're calling for and and clear arguments about why 
um, the private sector uh, shouldn't be involved in that. Uh, why it's the, it's it's their their lobbying, their business practices that have got us into the mess that that we're facing, and and why we need democratic public alternatives. Mm-hmm. And you know, speaking of that, uh, this summer Jeremy Corbyn released this massive platform on energy and the environment uh, during during the leadership race. So, you know, how much of a concern do you think this is for the labor left and for organizations like Momentum? And have you seen any shift in the last several years and how the country's kind of anti-austerity formations are relating to climate? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, as you say, um, Corbyn's kind of manifesto on energy environment was pretty strong. Um, so so big support for the kind of municipal energy schemes that we've been talking about, as well as um, small scale community generation, um, ambition on renewables, banning fracking. So so that's so that's really positive within momentum, as as I understand things, um, the, there's been more of a focus on kind of issues around education, housing, health, and that uh, issues around energy have kind of been taken forward by interested individuals within Momentum. We sort of hosted a workshop on energy democracy at Momentum's conference recently, so there is space there um, to, be pushing, to be pushing that kind of agenda. On the kind of bigger, bigger question of, of that relationship between like, anti-austerity politics and climate politics, I think, yeah, I think that's a really interesting kind of one to, to think through. So, I mean, in the UK, we had the climate camp, which people might have heard of, which was generally kind of a an annual uh, direct action camp at um, high profile symbolic points um, of fossil fuel um, infrastructure, whether it's um, airports or coal mines. Um, and then in t- uh, that had been running for a good few years, attracting kind of thousands of people to take quite confrontational, radical forms of action. And then in 2010, in, in the kind of aftermath of the crisis, as we were sort of um, dealing with the new Conservative government's first round of austerity, uh, the climate camp took the decision to stop organising um, as a network. And that, that was kind of because a lot of the people within that, within that network thought, OK, we're working in really different political contexts now. Um, we need to take stock and re-strategize. And, 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 you know, we need to be foregrounding those struggles around austerity and, and kind of day-to-day material economic survival issues almost at the moment. So out of the climate camp came uh, a, a lot of the key kind of organizers within climate camp actually went on to form UK Uncut. Um, who were kind of a high-profile anti-austerity network across the UK. And as well as that, another group um, that came out of, of, of Climate Camp was a group called Fuel Poverty Action, who were organising around the question um, of fuel poverty, so people not being able to afford to heat their homes in the winter and getting ill, and in some kind of extreme cases dying of cold. Um, so that this was becoming an increasing problem as austerity kind of, um, the impacts of austerity were being felt quite starkly. Um, and the, the the idea there with fuel poverty action was to try and make links between the climate politics and those austerity politics by by arguing that uh, the solution to both of these problems was was taking power back over our energy system was a democratic kind of uh, energy system was kicking up privatization um, and and fuel poverty action have been quite influential I think in in pushing kind of uh, climate politics within the anti-austerity movement and in pushing anti-austerity politics within the climate movement. Uh, and, and it's kind of switched on London. Um, it's quite directly related to that campaign, kind of came out of that. Um, so that's kind of the movement side. I think there's another interesting story um, around trade unions and kind of trade union structures in the UK, um, who are obviously a key actor in kind of anti-austerity struggles. I mean, that that's kind of like a historically um, difficult relationship between the labour movement and the environmental movement. Um, 
there's been some like progress. So, so as I said, Switched on London um, is backed by some of the major unions in the UK, like Unite and Unison. But we, we recently had this new decision from the, the new Conservative uh, Prime Minister, Theresa May, to uh, go again for a third runway at Heathrow. And Unite, uh, the kind of major, major union in the UK, um, is backing that decision, is backing airport expansion. And, and that's kind of something that we've seen kind of over the years as well. And I think there's... Um, problem here that works both ways there's there's kind of on on the environmental movement side there's a kind of narrow idea of environmentalism that often misses out on 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 a, on a kind of class analysis and then uh within the labor movement there's often perhaps a, a kind of narrow idea um of what trade unionism is about based on um a concern for protecting existing jobs without thinking through kind of broader dynamics in the international kind of um class relations and without a kind of more progressive vision for for broader economic transformation, if you like. So, so yeah, that's kind of a, an unfolding um, kind of issue now that that is proving quite difficult. And so, I'm I'm curious now to to hear about your trip to Barcelona, where it seems like they are trying to meld these kind of bread and butter issues that have been at the heart of anti-austerity struggles with. Uh, energy democracy and with municipalization and and climate issues. So, you know, what did you find there? How did how does it compare to what's happening in London? And and you know, what can can folks kind of be uh, looking forward to uh, out of out of Barcelona? I mean, what we've seen in Barcelona is the rise of Barcelona and Comú, um, the kind of new um, citizens platform um, that's taken electoral power in the city, um, and that that um, party came directly out of. Um, some of those, um, like you say, everyday bread and butter struggles in the city, particularly the uh, La Paz, the anti-eviction movement um, that's been really inspiring in fighting against um, against housing evictions and foreclosures. And out of La Paz came the Alliance Against Energy Poverty, doing pretty similar work to, to kind of what I was talking about with fuel poverty action in the UK. Um, of of fighting around the issue of energy poverty, energy debt, um, of of um, people uh, struggling with their energy companies, uh, and organising in a kind of grassroots self help formation where people who who are experiencing struggles around their their energy provision can come along to a kind of fortnightly general assembly, can receive practical, legal, emotional support around what's going on. Uh, on the understanding that it's great if they can then go on and get involved politically in the group and support other people uh, who might be in similar uh, situations. And that's built a real kind of powerful fabric of of, um, grassroots solidarity and resistance in the city. And I think you have to understand um, the emergence of of the kind of new political party of Barcelona and and Camus in that light. And with the the question of, of, of energy... Yeah, so Barcelona and Comú are working now on um, plans for uh, a new municipal solar company, pretty pretty similar to the kind of vision that I've been talking about with Switched on London, of investing ambitiously in, in solar generation and then selling that on to households as an alternative to the private sector. Uh, and plans plans are underway for that. I mean, to, to compare it to, to the London case, the, the key difference there, I think, is that you've got the, the people making the policy are, are literally um, people who've been involved in energy struggles for years. So people with, with real you know, political commitment to, to projects of energy democracy and, and having sovereignty over our energy systems, which we don't have in London at all. But um, 
it's also interesting to think through in Barcelona what the new relationships between the struggles that Barcelona and Camus kind of um, came to power through and, and the new party and the new government, what that looks like. And I think uh, while there's like there's broad support, there is there is some kind of critical distance uh, as well there with there's a sense of I think there's a little a little bit of frustration at uh, how the new government has kind of lapsed into classic kind of political timescales and everything is moving very slowly. And the energy question, the movements there are kind of asking, well, why are you doing, why are you focusing on the question of supply and not thinking about the question of the local distribution network, the, the grid in the city? Um, because for movements there, that, that is the key priority. And that was, that's been a, a kind of key demand that they've been making for years. So there's some frustration there that the remunicipalization of the distribution network hasn't been made a priority yet. So, so I think, you know, you see there these really interesting tensions that emerge um, of what happens when uh, radical activist movements try and take power in the city and do inevitably, you know, push things forward, but at the same time uh, are, are bound up in kind of um, the rhythms of formal politics and, and, and what that means. Um, so, so that's interesting to think through, I think, for London uh, and for the UK um, and, and what could, you know, potentially come of, of the Corbyn project here as well. Right. And in the US, it seems like with Bernie Sanders campaign and in our primary cycle, people are just sort of starting to grapple with this question of, you know, what would it actually look like for the left to govern? And I think looking at, at Barcelona and, and similar sim- similar kind of municipal projects is, can be so instructive to, to seeing, you know, what are the real challenges of that? And something also that I think we're starting to wrap our heads around is the potential of cities and, and what working at the kind of municipal level uh, can look like instead of focusing always on the on national legislation or executive action or uh, other kind of federal policies. So in terms of renewable energy and democratic control, I mean, what do you see as possible at that city level? And what do you see as the balance between working there versus pushing for something like an energy vendor style overhaul of the of a country's energy system and what's the relationship between the two yeah well, well maybe with that question it's helpful to kind of yeah to start with that case of germany and the, the energy vendor um which i think it's good to understand the the way that that has kind of combined action at, at a number of different scales on the one hand it has been this big kind of centrally planned phase out uh, through kind of coordination subsidy tax but that the, the point of that has very much been to open up space for leadership at the scale of the city uh, and, and at the community level so the energy vendors uh, really been led here so we saw we've seen like 200 local distribution network contracts um, go back from private to city hands 70 new public municipal supply companies set up and it's these kind of initiatives that have been leading the way um, on pushing clean energy. So I think what, what that kind of makes clear is we have to think about things in a kind of multi-scalar way. Uh, that the scale of the city is really interesting because uh, it's, it's, if you like, it's this kind of hub of struggle where different groups and contestations can come together and network and connect and build new solidarities and that but also there's potentially a sense that um, influencing policy through the local state is, is less overwhelming than it is at the national level. Um, but at the same time, we have to think about how the city is always you know, contained within broader processes and relations and that very much is, is, is constrained by what happens at the national, at the international level as well. So we have to think through all of those different scales. I think in Spain, the strategy seems to be to take power in the city first and then have this kind of emerging network 
um, of rebel cities that might be able to come together to exert pressure at the national level. So if you have if you have major cities like Barcelona and Madrid asking um, searching questions of national government, um, then the hope is that that might cause some headway uh, at the national level as well. What comes out of that is, of course, you know, unclear, and that's that's a story that's still been still in the making, if you like. Um, so it would be super interesting to see what happens um, for 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 yeah for projects in in the US, uh, for the UK beyond that. Okay, and you know, you've you've studied the energy vendor a lot, and just to talk a little bit more about it, I think it's especially held at for countries like the UK, for countries like the US, as this example of how to transition at least partially off of coal, oil, natural gas, and, and even nuclear uh, for major industrialized countries. So, you know, in looking at that model, what do you think is good to kind of take away from it? What's what's you know, something that we can maybe look to replicate in other parts of the world. And what are the things that, that should get left behind? I mean, I've heard criticisms of, of the energy vendor as well from the left. And so, you know, what, what is, is good to kind of lift from it? Uh, and what's, what's good to leave in Germany? I mean, I think the first thing about the energy vendor is that um, it's, it's, easy, it's easy to tell that, that story um, as, a, as a story of, of a kind of forward-thinking, benevolent uh, government showing leadership of its own accord. Whereas really I think the energy vendor is a, is a story of struggle. Um, it's a story um, of, of leadership from below that is very much directly emerged out of the anti-nuclear movement and really kind of intense militant political struggles that have been waged for decades. And, that, and that's really important to bear in mind and that um, when we're thinking um, in other kind of uh, national contexts you know, do we have a culture of struggle that, that could support that kind of political change? Um, that, that's kind of an important question to be asking. And then, yeah, like you say, there's, there's, lots, um, there's lots that's inspiring about what's happened and then there's lots that shouldn't be romanticised as well. Um, I mean, I think for me, one thing that I find particularly interesting is, is the, uh, the impact that uh, the energy vendor has been having on the, the big utility companies in Germany. Um, which has been a serious loss of power. It really has hit them hard. Um, their market share has has really drastically um, reduced, and they're 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 really feeling the heat. They're really under threat, and that's not be been because of a kind of direct expropriation of their wealth um, or kind of directly legislating against their power. It's simply been because municipal and community uh, action has has kind of crowded them out. Has provided an alternative. Um, that that has proven effective and and popular, um, and that's that's kind of left left the big uh, utilities in a lot of trouble. But what's happening now uh, uh, is that they they know they're in trouble and they're they're fighting back uh, and they're doing everything they can to lobby um, to lobby to defend their interests. And, and we're seeing government kind of going back on some of its more ambitious ideas and, and more ambitious kind of um, commitments. As I understand it, I think subsidies are, are being a kind of rolled back at the moment um, and that's that's kind of come out of of lobbying so again i think it's just seeing seeing this process as, as kind of an ongoing an ongoing kind of battleground something that isn't going to be easy and whatever we win um will be fought back against will be co-opted turned against us and so 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 and that's not to say that we shouldn't be you know keeping fighting it's just that we need this constant um awareness of the need to to build power from below and, and to try and shape these these kind of energy transitions from below, and then and then in terms of actual policy, I mean, yeah, like like you say, as ambitious as the energy vendor has been, it's still there's still a lot of questions um, 
the obvious one being the place of Lignite Coal um, uh, and, and some of Europe's most kind of intense kind of um, energy kind of protests in recent years have been fought um, at the site of coal extraction in Germany, right? So we've got to keep that in mind as well. And do you see much uh, many alliances between the kind of keep it in the ground groups, uh, the the folks who are organizing these these protests around things like Enda Galenda, uh, and the people who are thinking about energy policy? Do you have a sense that those folks are working together? Is that uh, a place you know where there's potentially more um, more opportunity for alliances to to be waging both the fight to uh, transition away in kind of an equitable way and also shut lignite coal plants uh, like like in Glenda. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole the whole kind of agenda of energy democracy has has um, has has been led by by movements in Germany who, on the one hand, have been fighting to keep fossil fuels in the in the ground, and on the other hand, have led the way in terms of thinking about alternative imaginaries and ways of organizing our energy systems. Um, so, so, so to me, those movements and agendas seem very much seem very much linked. And you know, I've, I've spent um, some time in Berlin recently, kind of thinking through some of the energy struggles that have happened there around privatization and and trying to build energy democracy. And and uh, I would, you know, most of the activists who are involved in that campaign are directly involved in in Ender Galenda as well. So um, it's very much seems seems to me like a, a nicely connected. Kind of movement. I think again, again to go back to this question that I kind of touched upon earlier, it's interesting though to think about uh, again about the role of trade unions here. In that, on both the question um, of building new forms of energy democracy and and fossil fuel struggles uh, in Germany, there's been a lot of resistance from the major unions um, because obviously um, lots of jobs are at stake. And and until the climate movement, the energy democracy movement has a really concrete story about just transition and solidarity um that's that's going to remain an issue i think um so so yeah that's that's another thing to to kind of keep thinking through right and in the us so much of the conversation around renewable energy is dominated by the private sector which is predominantly non-union most of the of the solar and wind companies here are not union and and have no sort of prospects of of involving organized labor and you know we also focus on on these kind of market-based solutions around things like carbon taxes and cap and trade. And still, climate remains a kind of political non-starter, despite how constrained our conversation about it is. It didn't come up at all in our presidential uh, debates. It's it's really sort of off the radar of a lot of people. So to end on a, on a slightly more hopeful note than that, what do you think the framing of energy democracy can offer in, in that kind of context, especially in terms of, of you know, for foregrounding the needs of, of workers and uh, the role of trade unions and, you know, making the climate conversation about more than parts per million or about more than uh, greenhouse gases? Yeah, I think, I think that's a really important question because, because as you say, I mean, it's the same it's the same. It's the same in the UK, right? That the climate question is framed as this scientific, technical problem um, that is there for the experts to solve, right? And I think that the first task, um, as progressive movements mobilising around this question, is how can we politicise this issue? And I think that an interesting thing about uh, the idea of energy democracy is it is it offers us something of an explicitly political claim. It's about saying, look, currently. Uh, we don't have control. Our enemies have control. Our enemies have power, and and it's not enough to leave it to the experts or the market um, in in making um, way towards renewable energy. Instead, we need to take back that power. And I think that that 
that that idea of taking back power and control and thinking about sovereignty and, and those kind of issues um, is, is really interesting to be doing right now. So, so obviously in the UK, uh, we've had Brexit, we've had uh, the UK leaving the European Union uh, on the back of um, uh, of a framing uh, by by the right um, of take back control, right? Um, that what the right managed to do um, was tap into this sense of people not having control over their own lives. Now this clearly can be taken in really reactionary and disturbing directions, but it also I think presents something um, of an opportunity, right? And I think that progressive politics around energy, around any kind of issue, has to be more about more than distribution. Um, it has to be about, be about the idea of of kind of socialized democratic control over the resources we need to live decent, dignified lives, right? And there's a question of what that means today, um, of, of, of uh, given an ex our experience of kind of big statist control um, not going so well, um, what, what, what does publicly owned, democratically controlled um, renewable energy look like today? How can we kind of use the state uh, in ways that maintain the kind of spirit of grassroots participatory democracy um, that um, the, the movements over the past uh, couple of decades from the anti-globalization movement through to Occupy have, have expressed and, and foregrounded. And I think it's those kind of questions that, um, that uh, the energy democracy kind of framing it, it is raising and it's kind of um, pushing into the climate debate of who, who, who has power who who should own this infrastructure? Who has control over this this basic need, right? And to me, that's that's the kind of right question to be asking right now. Um, so so yeah, I take I take some hope in that, uh, and I take some hope in the way that this agenda is moving from from something that sounds great to something that's been enacted in practice right now. Well, I've got to admit, Kate, London does have some appealing qualities. Um, I might not be quite as enamored with the state uh, as you have become, but, you know, Kate, that's why we wanted your youthful voice on the show. Because what is youth good for if not just making impassioned defenses of, of state power? Exactly. That's that's what's engraved on, on, on my wall, actually. Um, so Barcelona 2, really exciting. Um, so really fantastic to hear about both of those two cases. Um, and now excited to hear a little bit more about the kind of cultural dimension of the you know, fossil-free uh, climate movement in Europe. Kevin Smith is a member of Liberate Tate, a London-based group that, after a six-year campaign, got the museum to cut ties with oil company BP this year. Rather than direct action, per se, Liberate Tate engages in performances and is self-consciously a movement led by artists and cultural workers looking to get big oil out of major cultural institutions. Their performances have included Human Cost, which involved dousing one of their members in fake oil inside a museum gallery on the one-year anniversary of BP's Deepwater Horizon disaster. Last year, they set up a makeshift tattoo gallery in the museum for Birthmark, where they invited participants to receive tattoos of the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in the year they were born. Since Liberate Tate began in 2010, several fossil-free culture groups have emerged around the world, including the Natural History Museum here in the States. Kevin was one of three Liberate Tate members that came to the States a few weeks back for the Creative Time Summit in Washington, D.C., they stopped by New York on their way there, which is where I caught up with Kevin about winning and what's next. Here's Kevin Smith. 
So how do oil companies find their way into art galleries? So basically, uh, oil companies are responsible for some of the most controversial environmental and human rights abuses in the world. And in order to get away with doing that, they develop what industry experts call the social license to operate. And that's a, a certain public perception amongst policymakers and influential members of society that gives a, a veneer of uh, respectability to uh, oil companies despite the very terrible things they're responsible for. So in the way, same way that cigarette companies used uh, sponsorship relationships to give themselves to gloss over the terrible things that they were doing, oil companies depend on these uh, sponsorship relationships to develop their social license to operate that enables them to get away with doing the terrible things they do. And how have you seen the climate movement change since you started up in 2010? So different members of Liberate Tate have been involved in various parts of the climate movement. And so, you know, how have you seen this kind of development of this idea of corporate campaigning, specifically at oil companies, uh, as opposed to, you know, what else was happening in, in 2010, which here in the States was a lot of sort of ride your bike, change your light bulbs, that kind of consumer-based activism. I think one of the the what's happened over the six years that we've been uh, carrying out this uh, efforts against Tate and BP has also been the, the flourishing of the divestment movement and I think they're essentially using a similar strategy of trying to kick out some of the uh, legs of support that these companies have uh, and in a way the divestment movement has, has never really been about the financial impact on the oil companies it's been about the stigmatizing about uh, saying to you know important cultural institutions like churches and universities and so on that these oil companies are fundamentally incongruous with you if you hold values of not wanting to trash the planet not wanting millions of people to die as a result of, of runaway climate change uh, and so I think that's a type of campaigning that's developing that's, that's recognizing that it's really difficult to go directly up against oil companies because of the enormous amount of power they have and also because of how comfortable they are with being um, evil scumbags, to, to kind of, if, you, if I can use the phrase, that they're really comfortable being, or they know that they're structurally locked into being evil scumbags. So what a number of like uh, campaign groups are trying to do is to try and kick out the various means of political, financial, or cultural support that enable these oil companies to function. And there's kind of this trope around crunchy environmental activists that definitely plays out here, and I imagine plays out to some extent in the UK. So I'm wondering if you could talk about what kind of value add there is for Liberate Tate and other groups doing this kind of work uh, directed at institutions in being artists and coming at this not necessarily as activists or direct action people, but uh, as people who you know have an association with what's happening actually inside the gallery and its functions in other ways too. So I think in terms of the, the question of our methodology that we've used, what we've been trying to uh, develop you know, on the back of work that many other uh, art activists have done is to try and blend together art and activism in a way that is uh, enabling artists to be more bold and activists to be more creative. So it's kind of trying to utilize a, a, a creative form that resonates with people and creates uh, important 
cultural experiences that resonate at a deep level, but also using techniques of transgression, of occupying space, entering space, uh, doing confrontational things in those space, that, that, um, that, that again make for a much more powerful experience. And so I really think that um, the, the, the you know protest has quite a limited vocabulary, uh, and I think trying to fuse in a meaningful way more creative approaches and our, our values to that is is really freeing up the, 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 the palette of protests to produce a lot more potential for engaging forms in lots of different spaces and issues and sectors and so on. And what do you think is the potential for people to take action within their various sectors? Uh, you know, you're obviously focused on art, but in terms of, you know, say education or academia or, or other other kinds of places where people find themselves as, as actors and, and constituents? I, I think with an issue like climate change, it cuts across all sectors of society. And then I think everyone has a, a responsibility of being members of particular institutions, be that, you know, a church, a gym, an art gallery or uh, you know a, a, a club or society to try and leverage institutional power as a, as a means of addressing the threat of climate change because I'm all in favor of people changing their light bulbs but we, we've kind of you know we've come up very quickly against the limit of uh, power of what individuals can do uh, and it's not about this is why when we're talking about oil companies we're trying to shift the locus away from the person who might have used a bus that's used petrol to get to the protest and talk about how these enormous institutions use their political and financial influence to, to shape the rules of the game, to influence the policies and you know dilute the regulation that prevent us from making the, the just transition to, to sustainable energies. And so it's a question of working, looking at what institutions you're part of and how to build up power within those institutions to present a more uh, a, a powerful institutional response against very powerful institutional oil companies that are trashing the planet. Could you talk about your victory and actually winning? Was that something you were expecting? What did it feel like when that kind of happened? Yeah, just walk us through. So we were coming to the end of a, a five-year funding cycle between BP and Tate, and we were very aware that we'd been quite successful in making this into a much bigger issue that was taken very seriously than it had been before. We knew from the various minutes that was being discussed up at the board level, there was more and more prominent people who were speaking out against the issue. So we were very um, we, we were conscious of the fact that the... the uh, you know, the profile was changing, but we were also conscious that we were running out of time on that five-year cycle, and, and what would it mean if we had to start again with another five-year cycle at the end of 2016 coming about? So we were quite, we were confident of the fact that we were becoming an increase, a bigger and bigger thorn in the side of Tate over the issue of BP sponsorship, but we just didn't know how it was going to play out, so we were quite surprised. I think it's also worth mentioning that it's a victory of sorts in that uh, Tate dropped the BP sponsorship, but it's also not a victory until we've brought down oil companies and stopped them from uh, 
stopping a just transition from happening and undermining their power base in society. So what's next? Uh, it's a very big question. Liberate has a little bit of an existential crisis in a good way uh, because you know we've developed a very strong identity around disrupting this sponsorship relationship and that sponsorship relationship has been thoroughly disrupted. But now, uh, so now we're at a point where we're in the same way uh, we had a particular approach to developing our performances that we didn't force it. Uh, we chewed over ideas and different ideas for performances until one of them really felt right for us and in the same way we're not forcing now what's next for us as a group there's lots of really worthwhile things we can be doing such as this tour that we're doing now to talk to various groups in the states and learn from groups in the states about what's going on um, so maybe we'll be talking about other cultural institutions that are still getting oil money but we're very uh, committed as a collective because we've developed such a uh, uh, what feels like to us a very powerful creative methodology in working with each other and um, we want to ensure that that uh, carries forward in some way. Thanks for that Kate. Um, so ideally when we're speaking uh, in the next podcast after the election, uh, the political system won't have been hacked by the Russians. There will only be a few bands of bitter, roving gunmen stalking the streets and uh, things will be looking up. Well, you know, we, I think we've both watched our share of dystopian science fiction uh, over the years, so we might have a sense for what's coming. And, you know, I know I've been running a little bit more just to get ready, trying to get better at lifting heavy things in the event of um, some sort of dystopic scenario. So exercise is important regardless of whether there's an armed far-right uprising. And it's low carbon, you know? Nobody is uh, blowing up their carbon footprint by, by going to the gym. That's right, exactly. Yeah, uh, you know, from state politics to biopolitics, Hot and Bothered is, is keeping it fresh. Please tweet us your questions, complaints, concerns about the, the nerdiness of our banter and confirmation of Daniel's suspicion that our podcast is, in fact, rigged to hashtag hot bothered climate. And uh, speaking of hashtag hot bothered climate, a huge shout out to our first ever podcast guest, Timmons Roberts, for just consistently tweeting at us uh, in really productive and wonderful ways. And also a shout out to the SEPTA Strikers here in Philadelphia, where I, of course, now live. Um, they are this week's favorite low carbon protagonists. They're fighting for a better mass transit system. And I guess finally, uh, since we're talking about hashtags, fight out to No Dapple, uh, the resistance movement to the pipeline out in North Dakota, which has really brought together so many water protectors from a variety of uh, native and indigenous communities up there. And of course, their allies in the climate movement. So stay hot. And stay bothered. Stay bothered.